Strange Studies of Strange Stories. With a clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omelas, bright towered by the sea. The rigging of the boats in harbor sparkled with flags. In the streets between houses with red roofs and painted walls, between old moss-grown gardens and under avenues of trees, past great parks and public buildings, processions moved. Some were decorous, old people in long, stiff robes of mauve and gray, grave master workmen, quiet, merry women carrying their babies and chatting as they walked. In other streets, the music beat faster, a shimmering of gong and tambourine, and the people went dancing. The procession was a dance. Children dodged in and out, their high calls rising like the swallows crossing flights over the music and the singing. All the processions wound toward the north side of the city, where on the great water meadow called the Green Fields, boys and girls naked in the bright air, with mud-stained feet and ankles and long, lithe arms, exercised their restive horses before the race. The horses wore no gear at all, but a halter without bit. Their manes were braided with streamers of silver, gold, and green. They flared their nostrils and pranced and boasted to one another. They were vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Far off to the north and west, the mountains stood up half-encircling Omelas on her bay. The air of morning was so clear that the snow still crowning the 18 peaks burned with white gold fire across the miles of sunlit air under the dark blue of the sky. There was just enough wind to make the banners that marked the race course snap and flutter now and then. In the silence of the broad green meadows, one could hear the music winding through the city streets, farther and nearer and ever approaching, a cheerful, faint sweetness of the air that from time to time trembled and gathered together and broke out into the great, joyous clanging of the bells. Is Omelas a holiday resort? <laughs> it's like all the wonder of a cruise ship, but on land. Oh. Who would ever want to leave a place like this? Well, we're going to find out because that is the introduction to The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. I'm excited because I have seen the name Ursula K. Le Guin for my entire life. It just always seemed synonymous with science fiction on the spines of those books, yet I've never read any of her work. Who was that reader? The reader who brought that passage to life was none other than Mia Kodama, a wonderful actress and writer from uh, Southern California making her debut on the show. And you can also hear her in a production by this week's sponsor. She is featured in a new podcast production of The Horror at Martin's Beach, the story by H.P. Lovecraft and Sonia Green. I'm so excited for this series because I love that story so much. I really remember recording and editing that episode for this show. Mm -hmm. At the time, I remember thinking this story should really be adapted. And I I guess I accidentally used the secret because oh, I have made it manifest in the real world <laughs> with this week's sponsor. This this week's sponsor is from Kingdom of Pavement, a podcast production company that brought you chart-topping scripted podcasts like The Last Station and Just To Be Nominated. Kingdom of Pavement's newest show is, as we said, The Horror at Martin's Beach, inspired by the Lovecraft short story The Same Name, which just celebrated, I didn't realize this, it's 100th year anniversary. Of course, yes. The Horror at Martin's Beach is a 10-episode fiction series that will air weekly starting on Halloween. <laughs> and it follows a group of Greek life students who show fashionably late to a party at the ominous Martin's Beach. Why do I already want terrible things to happen to them? <laughs> Maybe it's because they're fashionably late. Oh. I hate that term. It's just late. You yeah. can't add fashionably to something and get away. Ooh, I fashionably farted. <laughs> Not going to apologize for that because it was fashionable. <laughs> 
Probably because I'm so fashionably drunk. <laughs> when the students find that all the partygoers have disappeared from the beach, our characters have to fight for their lives against strange Lovecraftian horrors, as well as the monsters born from their own secrets. I love monsters and I doubly love secrets. The Horror at Martin's Beach is written and created by Kyle Cords, and you can subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or visit kingdomofpavement.com. Mm -hmm. Please check out this show. I'm going to be right there with you. I don't know if you remember in that story, the monster has hypnosis powers. Oh, right. Yes. We'll link out to it in the show notes. The Horror at Martin's Beach. Tune in. Do it. Ursula Le Guin, I think at some point we've talked about doing a full month of her stories. I think mm -hmm. we will. What do we know right now about this very famous author? Ursula Kroeber Le Guin was born in 1929 in Berkeley, California. Her father was an anthropologist and her mother was a writer. She had three older brothers and she read a lot of hand-me-down stuff from her brothers, including thrilling wonder stories and astounding science fiction. She got into myths and legends, Norse mythology, and Lord Dunsany. She mentions loving Theodore Sturgeon, Tolkien, Tolstoy, and Philip K. Dick. I'm glad she likes Dunsany, because we're going to cover a little of his stuff once again very soon. Yeah. I can definitely see his influence in today's tale. She got her degree in Renaissance French and Italian literature from Harvard in 1951. She did grad studies at Columbia and started working on her PhD and studied in France. She was married to Charles Le Guin in 1953, which she said signaled the end of her doctorate work. They moved to Portland and had a child in 1964. Le Guin started writing when she could find time. Her first published work was a poem, Folk Song from the Montana Province, in 1959. And her first published short story, On de Music, was in 1961. Both of these were set in the fictional locale Orsinia. In 1962, she was published in Fantastic Science Fiction with the story April in Paris. Her first novel was Rokanon's World in 1966, with follow-up novels later that year and the following year. This science fiction setting is known as the Hainish Cycle, and it includes seven novels, I think. There are collections of short stories also mixed in there, so just a lot of material. And we were talking about Playboy earlier, which was into her stuff and wanted to run one of her stories, Nine Lives, in 1968, but they wanted to hide her gender. They didn't want a woman author in a men's magazine. She agreed to that and was attributed as UK Le Guin. <laughs> Wait a minute, fiction by a female author? I'm experiencing shame. A lady saw me. I mean, who gives a sh In 1968, she really got onto the map with A Wizard of Earthsea which was intended to be a young adult novel. This started off the Earthsea Cycle, which comprised six novels and a number of short stories. A lot of her work has been classified as feminist science fiction, but more than that, she's tackled sexuality and gender classification. She deals with philosophy, political systems, and morality. She's one of the biggest genre authors of all time, and yet it has taken me almost 50 years to read any of her stuff, which is a crime and a shame. No, there's no shame. You read whatever you want, whenever you want. I'm not too old. You're not too old. Yes. This story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas, was first published in 1973, the year of my birth, yeah. in a sci-fi anthology called New Dimensions 3. It's been studied a lot. It seems to be a part of a lot of literary criticism courses, and I, I can see why. I thought after Lonesome October, we'd swing back around to science fiction, so I got my ray guns all lined up, and, uh, you know, I had my <laughs> antennae clipped on my head and cracked this open. This is more of what you might call philosophical fiction. Sure. But let's just, let's get into it. As you heard in the beginning, Omalas is this idyllic place 
She describes it as a seaside town nuzzled in a mountain range. There's a festival happening, the festival of summer, and this place is rocking. As you heard in the opening, on some streets, it's kind of a walking to the parade with your lawn chairs kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Some streets, it's a full-on New Orleans Bourbon Street scene. And this whole massive Omelas block party is moving toward the north side of the city where, quote, on the great water meadow called the Greenfields, boys and girls naked in the bright air with mud-stained feet and ankles and long, lithe arms exercise their restive horses before the race. So this is definitely a Garden of Eden scenario. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ashamed of being nude. A horse race is going to happen. Even though the horses aren't even bound up, there's just a minimal halter on them to to be ridden. And it says the horses are restive. That's one of those adjectives I always have to look up because Mm -hmm. it sounds like the opposite of what it means. Restive means jittery. Can't sit still. It's a lot. It's like restless. It's not the opposite of. Right. Restless. And they're restive because it says they were vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Mm. I was getting too hung up on these horses because then I started wondering, (laughs) well, it says the horse is the only animal to adopt the ceremonies. Mm -hmm. So did like a representative of Omelas go around in the woods trying to hand out flyers to the other animals (laughs) to get them interested? Like, hey there, Woodchuck, we're having a festival. Okay, he's moving on. Snake, snake, festival this week. Oh, Oh, man, what's the point? That's what's suggested by the text. Anyway. (laughs) It's a big party in Omelas. There are bells ringing all over the place. It's great. The narrator asks us questions. How is one to tell about joy? How describe the citizens of Omelas? They are happy people. There's no king. There are no slaves. The narrator says that she doesn't know if they have laws, but if they do, there aren't many. They have no secret police, no stock exchange, no bomb. But she's careful to point out, you know, these were not simple folk, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. Like, these aren't science fiction people. And this makes me wonder about the narrator and who they are. Is it just the author posing a hypothetical, or is this narrator someone in this world? Like a character of this town. I Mm. think the narrator is third-person omniscient, meaning able to look at all of this from a distance. But there definitely is a voice, because as you pointed out, the narrator's asking questions. Mm -hmm. Even if they are rhetorical questions, we're we're being spoken to. So I do think that the author is almost a character in in the story a little bit, spinning this this thought experience. For us. It says here, the trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick him, join him. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight, to embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man nor make any celebration of joy. This really resonated with me because some of the discussions that came up last year when we covered Nutcracker and Mouse King, strangely enough, by E.T.A. Hoffman, Uh because the character in there, Maria, I think was her name, Mm -hmm. she's able to create a whole world for her toys. And there is a conflict, but it gets settled. And then it's just a long, Dope party with cookies and candies doing (laughs) dances. There's no conflict. It's weird to have a story with no conflict. We think of the ways we talk about story as being descriptive rather than prescriptive, as in, you know, it's structure rather than formula. Conflict has to be in the story because we've seen all stories have it. And here are the types of conflict we see. It's not just writers have come up with this. We find it in nonfiction as well. We find it in the Jungian collective unconscious. You know, Mm -hmm. we dream by these story rules. But is that just a lack of imagination? Like the children in Mimsy were the Borogoves. They have those younger, more elastic minds and they're able to see past typical geometry. Is it that way for the stories we tell as well? We actually don't need conflict. Mm. And in the future, perhaps they'll spin tales that don't have it. 
are these just brutalities that we insert into this, the nobilization of pain that we've made noble because we experience it in life. Well, yeah, but there is conflict that doesn't involve pain necessarily. Somebody wants to, they go to the shop and then they realize they forgot their wallet. That's painful because you got to go back home and get your wallet. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so painful. (laughs) You just described something horrific to me. (laughs) Nothing's worse. And it's painful for the checker too. Oh, I got to deal with all your stuff. There's a big line behind you. For you, that does sound painful and I'm sorry. that (laughs) I want to talk about this story for the whole episode because I'm horrified. (laughs) I'm sorry I've done this to you. (laughs) (laughs) My hair just went grayer. Well, you derailed me there. Where was I going I'm with sorry, that? I'm sorry. Uh, you, no, you no, probably were making a good... You're right. There are... The conflict doesn't have to be horrific. No. Every time. No. It no. could just be two choices. And, and which one do I want to choose? Yeah. And they both could be pretty reasonable choices as well, or happy choices. Yeah. You know, like, do I want to eat the steak or do I want to eat the chicken? <laughs> Every wedding is a story. You're right. That's like uh, David Robertson, our friend, used to describe romantic comedies as being somewhat like that. He'd go, my life's perfect, but can it get better? Because they are all a little like that. I'm so busy with my architects, you know, redesigning my kitchen. I don't know when I have time to date. (laughs) It's true. So back to the story. One thing that I think that the author might be trying to say is that to have resonance or to be important of the story, it doesn't need to have people like really suffering or really right, right. having tra- like hard tragedy in their lives to be of merit. And I think that's yeah. just what she's saying. Yeah. They go on to say that Omelas sounds like a fairy tale, right? They suggest that it could have some technology like trains and washing machines, perhaps even future tech like floating sources of light or clean energy. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter. It's as you like it. Then the dogs definitely have jetpacks. There you go. Flying around, catching air sticks. What Le Guin is doing here is sidestepping specificity in order to get a point across. Sort of like Mary Shelley doesn't show you how Frankenstein creates life because then you could dismiss it as old science Mm -hmm. that doesn't work. And Le Guin says this utopia is a utopia in the way that you think utopias should utope. Because if I get too specific, we might get tripped up in it. You'll Or think she's naive or go, I wouldn't sure. want a world like that. Or here's the problem with it. If you think robots that whip you every time you have a naughty thought are there, Omelas has got them. <laughs> or there's no robots that whip you when you have naughty thoughts. It's just naughty thoughts that are free. But her directing this question to us, or it's saying mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want. You have free reign with this idea. It says to me that this is a hypothetical. Exactly. The narrator goes on to say that this place seems to be too, if it seems too goody-goody for you, let's throw in Mm -hmm. some orgies. Religious orgies maybe, but no church. There's free love and children that are born of these unions are taken care of by the society. And oh, there's drugs as well, but not bad drugs. There's a non-addictive drug that is great for the enhancement of joy. The narrator calls it Druze even though most people don't need it or want it. Drew's is also what Huey Lewis was talking about in his philosophical treatise, I Want a New Drug. (laughs) I mean, that's what she's saying, though. It's kind of funny. It's a non-addictive drug that gets you high and there's no cost. And then it's like she's so hypothetical and asking you questions, but she knows what that's named. It's Drew's. I've been thinking about Drew's a lot. But the narrator really lays it out. This place is wonderful in all ways. It's what you think your vacation is going to be versus what it actually is. Right. And the party all arrives at the meadow for the horse race at this point, and the festival of summer has begun. So the narrator asks, do we accept this utopia now? No? Okay. Well, this will clinch it for you. Let me describe one more thing. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its more spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. 
A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, secondhand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide, a mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly 10. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mops are still standing there, and the door is locked, and nobody will come. The door is always locked, and nobody ever comes, except that sometimes, the child has no understanding of time or interval, sometimes, the door rattles terribly and opens, and a person or several people are there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close but peer at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. The food bowl and water jug are hastily filled, the door is locked, the eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything. But the child, who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining. And it speaks less and less often. It is so thin that there are no calves to its legs. Its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. Dear God. Here I thought we'd leave the campy horror from last month behind and get into some sci-fi, but Ursula said, wait a minute, how about some real horror first? Oh, Jesus. This passage took me by surprise. I, I knew this short story was regarded as a classic, but I didn't know what it was about. And she really drew me in with that opening and then quite effectively made my stomach turn mm -hmm. with that scenario. The two lines that really stood out to me were, it is afraid of the mops, finds them horrible. I don't know why it was that. Just the child's imaginings made it so real, and, uh, and it got to me, that section. The, for me, the I will be good, please let me out, I'll be good. Ugh. The, oh, God. The hope that the child still yeah. has is heartbreaking. This child has shown no love, just given enough food to keep it alive. Everyone in Omalas knows this kid is here, and they accept it. Because if this kid doesn't suffer, then everything falls apart. In some magical way, this child's suffering keeps this utopia afloat. They all know that it has to be there, it says. Some of them understand why and some do not. But yeah, all these great riches and experiences are dependent on that child's abominable misery. Now, I get that it's a hypothetical, but in my brain and just the way that I think of things in these stories, mm. I can't help but ask why and how. This is a problem I have with hy hypothetical situations where a realistic hypothetical situation I can get, but why is this kid being imprisoned and how does that make their lives better? What force yeah. uh, is at work at, 
in this situation. I don't understand. Why and how does everybody in the town know this is how it has to go? Because right away, I mean, I got it. The author is showing me the world as it is the real world in some ways. Those of us in more developed world live such rich lives while there are others without access to even clean water. Mm -hmm. And we go through every day knowing that that's a reality and just sort of, sort of ignoring it. But then in the reality of this story, you think, well, at some point did they rescue the kid and they were punished for it? Mm -hmm. And that's why they know they have to be doing this. And if that's the case, then it's not really their fault. There's a deity that's doing this to them. Yeah. They're at gunpoint. So I can't really blame them for doing what nature has told them they have to do. Again, that kind of changes the whole point of the story. Because if there is a deity that's making them do these things, that's not our world. We're not being forced. Right, well, that, right, exactly. It confuses things, I think, a little bit. We'll talk about that right. at the end. Yeah. Now, parents tell their kids about this kid in the basement when they're about eight or 10 years old. Young people go and visit the kid just to see. They aren't allowed to talk with the kid or show the kid any affection because that would make everything fall apart. The author also doesn't state what the gender of this kid is. And I think that's mm. probably intentional because if she did, it would make this a feminist piece, either gender yeah. you make the kid. Everyone knows that this kid suffers so that they can have this amazing place. They appreciate the sacrifice the kid makes, yet they go on living their lives and being happy. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. They know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that, ma existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. So the argument is that this pain must exist in order for the sweetness to exist. The narrator challenges our take on this hypothetical place. Now, do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not, in fact, go home at all. Sometimes also a man or woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omelas through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across farmlands of Omelas. Each one goes alone, youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls. The traveler must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow lit windows and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone, they go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us in the City of Happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going. The ones who walk away from Omelas. And that's the end of the story. Mm. My very simple takeaway is that we have accepted this truth in life that some must suffer for others to be happy, which makes the story that she has told is very easy to believe. But there are others who, although they don't yet know the other way without this happening, mm -hmm. they're out there and they're searching the dark for it. And we could be like that. We can get away from pre-established thinking. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that, that for happiness to exist, others must suffer. I don't know if she does either. But that seems like what she's saying here on my other podcast 
Rachel watches Star Trek, do, mm-hmm. that I do with my wife. We covered an episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds just a couple weeks ago, totally by chance. I didn't know that we were going to be covering the story when we did, but there's an episode called Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach, which is obviously based on this story. Oh, really? In this one, there's a whole civilization, a planet that has very advanced technology. They float above their planet in these cities, these floating cities, and then there's a kid. Every so often, the kid is born and he's special. And then they they call him like the chosen one. He's special. He's really smart. He can do all these things and you don't know what's going to happen to him. So they take him down to the bowels of one of the cities and there's this computer. They take out a withered dead kid body and they plug him into this new computer and they say, our whole civilization needs a, a child's brain to be able to function and use all these computers to work. And our whole mm. civilization would come crashing down. Everything would be wrecked if we don't plug a kid in. We've tried yeah. to figure out other ways around it, other technology, but nothing has worked. So we have to do a kid. The kid volunteers for it. You know, he's he knows what he's getting into, but he's still mm-hmm. a kid. And of course, Captain Pike is like, this is messed up. You can't be doing this. And then she makes the argument, well, don't people suffer all over the universe? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is just one kid and it's not so bad. And think of how great our civilization is. So, but my issue with that is why didn't they just leave the planet? Why didn't they? They have starships. Did they rescue the kid? No. Oh, they didn't. No, they did not rescue the kid. The kid was oh, wow. stuck in the machine, and that was that. And then they just sort of left them. And I mean, I, yeah, I guess they're not supposed to interfere with those kinds of things. Yeah, it was a good episode, but there's like this story. I sort of have a problem with it because I can't let it go. I have to think about the details. What's your problem with that? Well, now I understand that our society is less awesome than this society, and yet we let thousands of children suffer, and not just mm-hmm. a kid. Yeah. But that happens out of an extremely complicated. A system involving millions of people and the suffering of the children in our world is a side effect of other things. It's not a direct link to the thing that gives us happiness. So like if I went out and told the police, there's a kid suffering over there, they're going to go over send child service. They're going to try and fix that because yeah. that's, that doesn't make our society work. That's a side effect of problems we have in our society. Well, I get a tiny bit of my power from the tears of children. I have a machine that what? converts it. Yeah, that's a very small fraction. <laughs> no, I get it. A lot of what happens in the world is also absolutely out of our individual control in, in the real world. Yes. You could argue that like we benefit from child labor practices and that sort of thing to get cheaper garments. So there are some direct connections, but it's not something that you can pull the strings on and there's lots of side effects as well. Yeah. No, and I cannot buy those clothes and I guess maybe I'm the one that walks away because I'm not mm-hmm. buying those clothes that are made by child labor. But you're saying that the theoretical world that she creates is something you struggle with, just like it yeah. was in that episode. Yeah. Well, it feels like you're personally are letting that kid hang out in that room and suffer. What happens if they take the kid out? What is the suffering they then have to endure? And couldn't you just endure that for even just one person to not have to go through it? Yeah. Well, and what is this level of discomfort that's that is going to happen from rescuing this one child? What if you found out it was like no more Dr. Pepper? It was like something small. What? Yeah. That's what they're putting up with this for? This is the whole uh, utilitarianism thing. This came up a lot with this story where mm. uh, utilitarianism is the doctrine that an action is right insofar as it promotes happiness and that the greatest happiness of the greatest number should be the guiding principle of conduct. This philosopher, Bentham, thinks Mm -hmm. that things should be judged instrumentally. What are the effects of the action of the thing? So judging these actions is based on how much pleasure or pain actions bring. No one person's pleasure or pain is worth more than any other person. 
to me, when I was reading the philosophy stuff, this Bentham stuff that he wrote, mm -hmm. it seems like it's a math equation. If you make some people suffer a little bit, does that make other people's more happy? Is that okay to make those people, right. you know, you're kind of balancing it out? And that sort of brings up the whole trolley problem, which mm -hmm. is, you know, you've got this trolley, it's going down the track, there's three people on the track, but if you pull the lever, then it'll only kill one person. Right. That math problem's simple. I can save those two other people and this other person dies. But what if the, the three people on the track are criminals? Or that one person on the other track is your mom. Yeah, yeah. Everything gets complicated and nothing is simple. This story that we're dealing with here, it's so complex and it tries to simplify these things, this idea down. And I can't help but ask these questions. How bad are things going to be? Does everybody just die if the kid's taken out of this place? You know, or do they just not get Dr. Pepper? I don't know. For me, <laughs> it, it distracts from what I think the story is trying to get to. Right. You're getting so soaked up in the reality of the scenario. Because I think that she's saying this isn't an accusation to us currently. It's more like, do we accept things because they've always been that way? And could we be questing for an entirely different world? When somebody says, like, I want world peace, we tend to laugh at them. Or it's met with an eye roll. Sure. Or no one should be hungry. We Just the conventional wisdom is these things aren't possible. Well, why? And the reason the title is the ones who walk away from Omelas, yes, they are leaving that civilization as it is, but they're going to quest, what's the different way I can perhaps bring back here? And I think, you know, like you were relating it to Star Trek right away. Another thing that relates from Star Trek is the Kobayashi Maru. Mm -hmm. from Star Trek 2. It's the particular genius of Kirk. If you gave Kirk the trolley problem, he'd rewrite the problem somehow so that he saved everybody yeah. because he's Kirk and he doesn't accept that he can't save everybody. So it's about not accepting the programming, I think, is what this story is about. Not accepting the stories that were told and the idea that someone has to suffer for something good is one story. But it doesn't have to be giant and world-changing stuff either. There no. are stories that you tell yourself. So And so many things are based on perspective. Like there's a story where me personally, in my career, I'm a success. And there's a story where in my career, I'm a failure. Sure. And the facts are the same in both stories, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's the perspective that you put on it. You're the protagonist in your life. And so like it or not, you're walking around, you're taking your memories and experiences and descriptions you've gotten from others over the years. And you're constantly writing that story for yourself and acting accordingly. And some people, they're going a little over overboard with how awesome of a hero there are. They mm -hmm. are, you know, some people think they're great. Most of us, it's more like cringe comedy. <laughs> oh my God, this idiot's doing it again. Right. The point of this story, is there pain or suffering in your life that you're putting up with because you think it's necessary, mm -hmm. but that's just a story. You know, sometimes I've said the scariest horror story of all would be one in which everybody, everything's going well all day. And the reason that story is scary is because when's the other shoe going to drop? You just know it's going to. Yeah. W but why? Why does the other shoe have to drop? I mean, why mm -hmm. do we even have a phrase for it? You say that and somebody knows what it means. They go, with every good thing comes a bad thing. It's just patterns we search for. Sure. And we can walk away from that kind of thing. You know that you're going to die eventually, et cetera. But I'm just saying that it doesn't have to be this karmic, you pay for it if something's good. Right. right? Yeah. We yeah. tell ourselves that story all the time. Life is about change. That's one of the things that you can't get around. The world and your life and you physically are going to change over time. And change is sometimes good and change is sometimes bad. There's no pattern is the thing, though. Yeah. Because no some people are born into luxury and they have no problems. They have they will have them in their life, but it's not like even close to what some other people experience. It's unbalanced and there's no rules, but we put story rules on it. I mean, I think that's what the whole thing is fighting against. Yeah. So it has less to do with these specifics and more to do with can you be more like those kids and Mimsy where the borough goes who, you know, are thinking past geometry. Similarly, it's the, the narrative, you know, yes. this idea that people do have to suffer so that they're there's benefit to others. Is it just a bull 
narrative, we can explode. Because if that's not there, there are fewer restrictions. When people think something's possible versus when they, conventional wisdom says it's not, mm-hmm. it changes behavior. Of course. And so I think that those who walk away from Omelas are the ones that are going, I, I completely categorically reject that it has to be this way. To, yeah. to me, that's what I took out yeah, of it. Yeah, and I, I get that. That's I think that is what's trying to be communicated with this story. But my hang up with it was this hypothetical and the details that were provided within because those Mm -hmm. details made me begin to look at it as a structure and start picking it apart. But from a narrative style, though, she is doing a pitch. She's saying, do you believe it now? Do you believe it now? How about I throw in that this is happening now? Is it credible? The idea being that she's eliciting from you. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, actually, if somebody's suffering now, I believe it. Otherwise, it was suspect. And think about that in science fiction. When the hero shows up and it's some utopian society, you go, where's the dark underbelly? As a fan of Star Trek, I don't think that. I think that utopian really? society is something that is attainable, that there could be a fair and just world. And if people just were yeah. smarter and kinder to one another, that that could be attained. You know, there's lots of problems, but I think that that's something that is possible. I hope for that Star Trek. That's almost mm-hmm. my, my religion, is that we have, that humanity is somehow evolving to a, a society where people, there are, is no suffering, as in like big suffering. Like there's no child that's going hungry. There's nobody being abused. There's Well, you know what though, what this sounds like to me then with yeah. you saying that is that part of the distaste you might have for the story is that you're just way well past it. The thing that this is trying to impart is a lesson that you've taken a hard a long time ago. You believe oh. that utopian society is possible. And so this hypothetical was kind of just grating against you. You're like, yeah, so what? It doesn't have to be that way. So like you had already taken the leap ahead. All whereas right. I feel like most of the audience goes, I knew there was a catch. Mm. And she pulls them along that awful catch. And then you go, but hey, I guess I, you know, some people are not putting up with this and they can get carried along the journey a little, a little oh, better yeah. perhaps. Maybe that's all it is. Well, I got to say, though, I was definitely impressed by the level of discourse that I wanted to have about this. But just that this wasn't, I didn't know what I expected out of Ursula K. Le Guin. With books called Earthsea, I guess I expected there'd be some kind of crazy flying sea monsters or, you know, fighting laser gun battles. A wizard on a unicorn, you know. And he's got x-ray vision and he can see everybody's bones. (laughs) You know. For example. <laughs> For example, sure, yeah. A thing like that. It doesn't have to be he sees everybody's bones. It's a good story, and it made me think a, a lot about this. And obviously, we're, we're, we're talking about it in a, in a way that yeah. we don't usually talk about stories on this show. It's exciting, and I can't wait to read more from this author. Another thing that I'm excited for, folks, Halloween. We're recording this a little before Halloween, but as of the airing of this, it's out, so you can go subscribe now. It's the Horror at Martin's Beach. It's a 10-episode fiction series. It's going to air weekly. Please tune into that. And also, I want to thank our reader, Mia Kodama, who is featured in that production. Thank you so much, Mia. I'm glad to have her on the show. I hope she comes back. Yeah, I hope so, too. Next week, we're going to be doing a story called Millennium by J.G. Ballard. It's a famous science fiction story, so Mm -hmm. it's about overpopulation, if you can't guess from that title. I couldn't guess. Something we've talked about a lot on the show. It's going to be a good one. It will be good. Until then, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories on Patreon and strangestudies.com. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Ah!